Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning, I want to share greetings from uh, Brother Jim Price. I talked to him, I believe it was Monday or Tuesday uh, this week. They were in Manitoba, and uh, he wanted to ask me to greet the folks here. He also, uh, because they've been so busy and on the road, hadn't had a chance, but and I think he sent a letter as well, but he asked me to thank the church for the, uh, the Christmas gift uh, that we sent. Said it was a great blessing and a help. Be praying for uh, Brother Jim as they uh, continue travels and raising support. And I wanted to share that greeting with you. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. I'm going to talk about four proofs of God's love. Four proofs. Now... There's a whole lot more than that. I was talking with Brother Colton uh, for a few moments this afternoon. We're talking about math. Uh, that's not a that's a weird Sunday afternoon discussion, mathematics. And we're talking about uh, calculus. That's an even weirder Sunday afternoon. Amen, Brother Maud. That's a weird afternoon discussion. And I was explaining a couple things and talking about proofs. And uh, I hated proofs. I hate proving anything in mathematics because when I did math, my brain isn't wired like everybody else's brain. Your brain works and my brain doesn't work. And uh, my circuits are wired all different. And uh, I can find the answer, but I don't follow the same path you, found, you followed to get it. And uh, I used to go back and forth with my math teacher over some of my proofs. Uh, and I would say, look, is my answer right or not? Yes, but you couldn't have got the answer the way you did it. I said, look, did I get the answer right or not? And we would go back and forth, and I, I probably should have been a little more uh, submissive to her. But uh, I, I didn't like showing proofs. God likes to show proofs. And by the way, he proves every day his love for you. His mercy is new every morning. Amen. Every morning when you see the sun come up, teenagers... Did you know that that thing, the, the, the bright thing up in the sky, it actually disappears at night and it comes back up early in the morning? Uh, it's not always in the sky, but when it comes up every morning, uh, it's a reminder that he rose from the dead, a reminder of his love for us. And we, we could look at hundreds and thousands of proofs tonight, but I just in this one little passage in Ephesians chapter 2, I want to take a few moments uh, just to enjoy uh, some time together in his word, uh, just to relish in what God's done. Uh, just to praise him, just to worship him tonight. Look with me here, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Lord, my heart tonight, my desire is that we would worship you and glorify you this evening. Lord, you're worthy of our praise. Lord, we get a few glimpses into heaven you've given us in your word. 
Lord, John would have written much more if you would have allowed him, but the few glimpses that you allowed John to give us, Lord, it seems every time I see through the windows of heaven, I see worship and I see praise. And Lord, tonight I pray as you taught the disciples to pray, would you make it a little bit like heaven on earth tonight? God, would you help us to worship you a little bit tonight the way we will worship you forever in heaven. Lord, someday we will bow before the throne and cry out with the angels and cry out with the saints of God, worthy is the Lamb. But Lord, tonight you're already worthy. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Help us tonight, Lord, to direct our worship and our praise to you as we look at these proofs of your love for us. Help me, Lord, to preach you right your truth. God, may you be glorified. In your precious name we pray. Amen. What would God have to do to prove his love for you? What would it take for us to say, I know, I know without a doubt that God loves me. And Would it take more money? Would it take better health? Would it take greater happiness in your life? More comfort? A better job? A bigger house? A newer car? What would it take? March 31st, 1995, I think it was. I think that's right, maybe 94. My wife will correct me later. That was my birthday. By the way, there's just a few shopping days left to my birthday. Be aware of that. <laughs> but my wife and I had been dating. We had our first date December 7th, maybe, or 8th. And then this is March 31st. It was a little over three and a half months later. I met her that day as I was going out to go to work. And she gave me a cupcake. It was a Otis Spunkmeyer, I think. Uh, chocolate, double chocolate, I think. Chocolate chip, chocolate cupcake. She had a candle on it. Uh, you know, she couldn't bake a cake in her room, so she bought a cupcake. And did you give me something else that day? I don't remember. I don't think so. She's a cheapskate. And uh, she gave me that cupcake <laughs> and as a birthday gift. And that day... As I was driving to work, as I got in my 1977 Ford Granada piece of garbage, and as I was going to work, me and my buddies, I looked over at the fellow who was my best friend in Bible college. His name's Jeremy. I talked to him just a couple weeks ago. It was his, it was his birthday, actually, a couple weeks ago. I looked over at him, and I said, Jeremy, I'm going to marry Carrie. I'm going to... I'm going to ask her to marry me at Christmas, and we're going to get married next summer. And he said, does she know this? I said, no, but I'm going to tell her. Now, when my wife heard that story later, she decided it must have been the cupcake. So, so girls, that's the secret. you got to give the cupcakes. But the cupcake had nothing to do with it. Too many times, all the little things that we think we want from God, they have nothing to do with God's love. 
But I want us to look tonight at some things that do have everything to do with the love of God. Everything God does, everything God does, he does for a specific purpose. He, he does nothing without cause. He does nothing without purpose. His efforts to mankind are always, if we look in the, the account of creation in Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see that God is always dealing with man to show man his love. Always. He, he, he loves us. He, he does nothing by chance. God does nothing in desperation. There's a wonderful old song, and part of that song goes, of you know, God searched through heaven looking for... God didn't search through heaven. I, I, I like the song. I, I understand the premise. Salvation was not a desperation move. God didn't have to scramble and back in the, the back. Oh, no, man, what am I going to do now? Man, sin. Where do I throw the ball? No, it was planned from eternity. It always was. God knew. So everything God does and everything God has ever done is for because he loves man. God never throws anybody away. For a little over a year now, God's put a burden on my heart. I'm going to have to do something about it pretty soon, but God's burdened me to, to do something that is pretty outside my normal wheelhouse. But I'm, I guess the Lord's going to, I'm either going to do it or God's going to kill me probably God's burdened me to write a book with that premise of don't throw them away we live in a culture today Christian culture where we give the gospel out and we try to reach people and so many churches if that person we reach is not the instant Christian that we think they ought to be if they don't look the way we think they ought to look and talk the way we think they ought to talk and do everything exactly the way we think they ought to in a couple of weeks, we want to toss them away and get started again. God doesn't do that. I love the story in the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah went down to the potter's house and he looked through the window and watched the potter as he worked at the wheel and he watched as the potter broke the vessel. But he didn't throw the clay away. He simply started again. Christian, we need to understand the love of God, that God doesn't throw you away. He doesn't throw me away. He desires to use us and to mold us and to make us. Now, does that mean that we're, I'm going to be able to do everything God has wanted me to do? There are times that because of some brokenness that I can't be all that God had wanted would want for me but that doesn't mean God throws me away I love the picture there of Jeremiah as he looks in the potter's house we look at God's love so often through what happens to us daily we look at it as wow something good happened today God loves me 
Oh, man, today was a bad day. Brother Maude fell on the stairs. Boy, it's a bad day. God must not love me. I'm a little worried. My enemy is now attacking you. We have the same enemy, the stairs. We look at, oh, this is good. Okay, I have a good day. This is bad. I've got a good day. Most of you probably know this. My family knows this for sure. If anyone asks me how I'm doing, what do I say, Rebecca? How are you? I say, I'm beautiful. Exactly. No, I'm not beautiful. But I've learned not to gauge how I'm doing according to what's happening in my life. God loves me. When I fall down the stairs, he still loves me. When I, when I disobey him, he still loves me. We look for God's love in the things that happen to us. And we say, God, why are you doing that? We question God. God answers back many times, I believe. Not audibly, but he answers back because I love you. Because I love you. I want to take just a few moments tonight, and I, I don't think I'll be lengthy this evening, but I want to share four thoughts, four proofs of God's love, and then I want to shift gears just a little bit for just a couple very small points into the message. Number one, we find this proof in our text. We're going to be looking just in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Would you look there with me? Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace. Are you saved? Proof number one, he quickened me. He quickened me. He made me alive. When I met Brother Bonnie ten and a half years ago, is that right? Brother Bonnie was a dead man walking. He was dead. He was lost. He grew up with a religious past, but he was lost. He believed the Bible, but he was lost. He believed who Jesus was, but he was lost. But just a little over 10 years ago, God took a dead man and he made him alive. Your testimony tonight, Christian, if you are born again, child of God, is you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. But he quickens you. When I was in grade 7, I came home from school one day. I walked down the hallway of our home, down the hallway past the bathroom, past the laundry in the hallway, and in my room was on the left, my sister's room, my room. I walked out of my room. When I walked out of my room to go back down the hallway, I looked, and there in the middle of the hallway was a tennis ball. Now I'm a hillbilly. I guarantee you there was no tennis racket, brother, within 100 miles of my house. There was not a tennis ball there because I played tennis. There was a tennis ball on my floor because I had a dog, Boston Terrier. And I looked down the hallway, through the living room, into the kitchen, and laying in the kitchen floor was my dog, stone cold asleep. How many have ever heard a Boston Terrier snore? They sound worse than Pastor Rice snoring, and I'm pretty bad. He was snoring. He was out of it. And in my little juvenile 
12-year-old brain. I hatched a plan. I thought, how cool would it be to line up that tennis ball, kick the tennis ball down the hallway, hit the dog, wake him up. I mean, that's, that sounds fun, doesn't it? So that's my plan. So no shoes on in the house. You know, I ran back to kick the tennis ball, and I kicked it about three inches before you got to the tennis ball on the ground. My big toe snapped in half. The bone broke, and the bone went through the toenail. Blood began to forcefully... Colton, you having, you having trouble yet? I know it's... He's, a, he's very visionary when he hears. Blood is spraying, and I began to scream. My loving mother, she's probably watching still, uh, she yelled at me to be quiet. She might have even said a, a real foul word like, shut up. I don't know what she said, but she's, what's wrong with you? Be quiet. What are you screaming about? My dad was on the roof of our house. He was working on fixing the roof on the back porch. My dad heard my scream through the roof. And he knew something was horribly wrong. My dad jumped off the roof. I don't mean he took the ladder. He jumped off the roof, came in the house, came in, and there I am. Blood squirting. They took me to the hospital. They had to kind of almost kind of set my toe a bit. And they had to cut the rest of the toenail off. And then they had to stitch because the bone went through the toe. They had to stitch the quick, what we call the, the meat underneath the nail. They had to put stitches across that. Now, there's a reason they call that quick. There, there's no doubt. There's some feeling there. And I remember that my dad holding me down, the nurses holding me down, and that was just to get the needle near me, Brother Maud. I hate needles. And they're stitching that quick. It's very much alive. You and I were dead, in Christ, dead without Christ. But he made us very much alive. How do I know God loves me? A lot of reasons, but I can look here in this passage and tell you tonight that God loves me because he quickened me. He made me alive. He gave me spiritual life. He's quickened us in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. Letter E there, he quickened us in Christ Jesus. It's an expression of his mercy and his love towards us. In verse 4, we were dead in sins. In verse 5, we were hell bound. Ephesians 2, 1 says, and you. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We've been made alive. I like the way Matthew Henry says it. Matthew Henry, uh, commentator of years gone by. Matthew Henry said, grace is the soul. Grace in the soul is a new life in the soul. As death locks up the senses, seals up all the powers and faculties, so does the state of sin. As to anything that is good, grace unlocks and opens all and enlarges the soul. Observe, a regenerate sinner becomes a living soul. Praise God for that. 
He lives a life of sanctification, being born of God. He lives in the sense of the law, being delivered from the guilt of sin by pardoning and justifying grace. He hath quickened us together with Christ. Our spiritual life, Mr. Henry said, our spiritual life results from our union with Christ. It is in Him that we live. As Jesus said, because I live, He shall live also. How do I know He loves me? From this passage, because He made me alive. He gave you life. He gave you spiritual life. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How can we question the love of God? When He said, I love you this much. Oh, I wanted more, God. He gave you everything. He gave everything that you and I might be alive. That we might have life eternal. Greater love hath no man than this, the Bible says in John 15. That a man lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8, but God, and I love this verse, probably one of my top Ten favorite verses in the Bible. But God committeth his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while I was getting better. Not once I became spiritual. Not once I cleaned up my life. But while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for us. I didn't have to improve myself. Matter of fact, it wouldn't have made a difference if I did. I didn't have to prove to him I was lovable. Why? I'm not lovable. He decided to love me. He loved me as I was. He died for the ungodly. By the way, he died for those that we wouldn't die for. When you think of the, the most evil and vile people in our world and in the past, we think of people like Timothy McVeigh. Became popular this last year. And uh, pop culture. Can I tell you that as wicked and vile as the crimes that Mr. McVeigh committed. He, I'm sorry, Mr. Dahmer and Mr. Mr. McVeigh bombing the tower. Uh, Mr. Dahmer, who I was thinking of, who killed and ate people and stored body parts, as wicked as all that was. God said, I, I'm, I want to make available to him salvation. Had he trusted Christ? Charles Manson. The vilest person you can think of in the world that we go, oh, that, pff, that's wicked. You know what God says? I love them. I love them. He wants to make them whole. He wants to quicken them. We live in a system that knows nothing of love. We know a perverted understanding of love. But I want to assure you tonight that God loves you. And he doesn't love you because he wants to get something from you. He doesn't love you because he, he's, he's trying to uh, earn something. He just loves you. And his love isn't temporary, it's everlasting. It's forever and forever and forever and forever. How many of you have ever eaten something that you love so much, you ate so much of it, it made you sick and you didn't want to eat it again? You ever been there? What was it, Josh? My food? <laughs> well, as a boy, I, I like sauerkraut. How many of you like sauerkraut? We made sauerkraut when I was a boy. I like sauerkraut. 
I think sauerkraut's awesome, Brother Mike. It's good stuff. I still like it. But as a young boy, about nine years old, I decided to eat a whole jar of sauerkraut. And I ate a whole jar of sauerkraut. I should have good gut bacteria the rest of my life, Brother Krim. I was sick. I was real sick. I mean sick, sick, sick. I didn't want to eat sauerkraut for a long time. God never gets sick of you. He loves us with an everlasting love. For John 4, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, dwelleth God dwelleth with him, and he and God. And we know and believe the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. God's proven his love through the Son, Jesus Christ. Number two. The number two proof we find here in this passage quickly tonight. Which we find in verse 6. And he hath raised us up together and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Proof number two tonight. He raised me up. He raised me up. He raised you up. You know, remember when Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross, all of my sin, all of your guilt and my guilt and your sin and my sin was placed on Him. All of it. I don't believe for one second that Jesus made a limited atonement. Those that would try to pervert the gospel to say that Jesus only died for a certain portion of sin. Can I tell you that if that were true, then Jesus Christ is a liar. And we ought to burn this book. Because he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If the Bible doesn't mean that, if, if it doesn't mean everybody, if there's someone who, no, he didn't die for your sin, he died for yours and not for yours, then God's a liar. And he's a charlatan, and he can't be trusted. Rather, he died for all. He bore all sin, every bit of it, all of sin. It was, it was on him on the cross. It was, hold on, when he came off of that cross, was buried with him, was buried with him. I remember, I believe it was my grandmother's funeral, my dad's mom that I preached back in 90, it was 98. My wife and I have been married a few years. I think my memory's right. I remember at the funeral, my, my cousins, I remember them all taking a note and folding that note up, placing that note in the casket. To be buried with her. Can I tell you when Jesus was placed in that tomb. Your sin was placed there with him. The sin that he bore on Calvary. He took to the tomb. So pastor what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about Jesus. Taking my sin to the tomb. Because he didn't stay there. He rose again. He, 
he rose again, meaning that sin was put ever behind him. In the book of Psalm chapter 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dwelt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are but dust. Look at verse 6 again in our text. It says, And hath raised us up together, and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice that phrase, hath raised us up together. Can I tell you those that know the English language better than I do will tell you that that phrase there uh, is something that is past tense. Not he's going to, but he already did. He hath raised us up. So preacher, when did that happen? When did he raise me up? Three days and three nights after they placed the body of our lovely Lord on the ground, when he rose again, you were raised with him. I was raised with him. He was raised incorruptible. Guess what, Christian? I was raised incorruptible in him. I know he loves me. I see the proof of his love. He, he quickened me. He made me alive. He raised me up with him. If you will, I was nailed to that cross with him. I was buried with him. I was risen with him. He brought within the redemption our new creation. I'm not just saved from hell. And I praise God I'm saved from hell. I'm glad I'm not going to hell. But can I tell you, can I tell you tonight that salvation is not just fire insurance from hell? I, I'm glad that I, there's no chance that I can go to hell. I had, I had two people yesterday tell me to go to hell. Brother Mud, I had one person tell me to do things that were physically impossible. I had, had some very rude people yesterday. But two different people told me to go to hell yesterday. That was their words. Now, I didn't say it. I, 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 here's what I said. I said, God bless you. <laughs> that was my answer as I was trying to get my gospel track. But what I wanted to say was I couldn't go to hell if I wanted to. Amen. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry you want me to go there, but I can't go. I, I have, I'm saved from hell, but I am saved to heaven. I am raised up. And Christian, let's not forget what we have. Let's worship him. Let's praise him for what he's done as we see his love. I'm made alive. I am risen with him. What a wonderful thing. He's forgiven me. He's pardoned me. He's regenerated me. He's adopted me. He's cleansed me. He's given me a home in heaven. He, he's with me. He's never leave me, never forsake me. And one day he's going to come back and say, Hey, come up here. And I'm going. How wonderful. I'm risen with him. All of this is done in Christ Jesus. So here's the question. Why do we live like we're part of this world? Why do we live like the people of earth? When Carrie was giving birth to Rebecca, it was a very 
very traumatic experience. It was very difficult. It was very dangerous few moments. The doctor came, tried one last procedure, and she told me, she said, Mr. Rice, if this doesn't work right here, right now, on this bed in this room, I am doing emergency cesarean section. It was some tense moments. I, I deal with tense moments with humor. Maybe you've understood that about me. But our doctor, she walked in and she had this, you'd almost thought COVID was in the air. She had a mask on. She had this plastic shield on. She had rubber gloves on. She had her hands up like this. And she was a, I can't remember what nationality she was, maybe East Indian, I think, lady, little lady. She came in and she looked like some kind of alien creature because of all the stuff she had on. And she walked in like this. And uh, quietly to the two nurses that were with me, I said, take me to your leader. Uh, they thought it was funny. She didn't think it was funny at all. Uh, Rebecca thought it was funny. She was laughing in the womb, but they didn't think it was funny. <laughs> Carrie was punching me. But Now, we joke about, you know, oh, not of this world, you know, something extraterrestrial. I think they've been shooting down on UFOs here the last couple weeks. Anyway, you and I, we're not of this world. We are not terrestrial. We are extraterrestrial. We belong to heaven. I've already been raised up in him. There's no reason for me to live like I belong. I, I, I've been made an heir of God, joint heirs with Christ. Eternity is my time frame. So many things we could go into tonight, but we see the love of God in him raising us up. Number three here in our text. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 2. Then in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Number 3 tonight, we see here that he shows grace. He shows kindness. Now, if... I'll let Brother Eric be God tonight. His wife would never hear the end of it if he got to be God. But if Brother Eric were God, and somebody came up and smacked him in the face, I mean just pop! Brother Eric's a mild-mannered, genteel gentleman. But I have a feeling if you pop Brother Eric in the face one too many times, he's not going to show grace and kindness. There's going to be a point, like, like Popeye. How many of you remember Popeye? Uh, but Mark, you said your dad said Popeye was your favorite. That was my favorite cartoon as a kid. Popeye's chicken. <laughs> That's my favorite chicken now. But Popeye was my favorite cartoon as a kid. And Popeye had the phrase... I've stood all I could stand, and I can't stand no more. And he'd be pushed just to the edge until finally he was ready to fight. Let's just be real honest. If you were God and you had to deal with you, there would come a point. The point would have come a long time ago where I would have said, Brian Rice, you're done. And yet God shows me grace. He shows me kindness. Amen. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. 
Grace, getting something good I do not deserve. Kindness, why? Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. How wonderful here. He might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Not just here. Here's a little bit of grace. The exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Here we see his love for the present and all for the future. It's not I want to give you something now, but not later. He wants to give us all throughout our relationship with him and through all eternity grace, kindness. God shows his love every day. Every day. It is of his mercies that we are not consumed. Mr. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, that preached during the Great Awakening. Mr. Edwards, who typed out or wrote down, not typed, he, he wrote down his messages. He was very poor of seeing. He would write his messages out word for word. He was not an orator. He was not a great public speaker. He would write out word for word his message. And it's said of Mr. Edwards that he would bend his head where he was face to face, probably, probably have macular degeneration, some sort of vision problem, as he would get very close to his notes and he would read them. It's said in a monotone voice, Brother Mott. It wasn't about the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. It was about the Holy Spirit of God that led Mr. Edwards to preach the Holy Book of God. Amen. And as Mr. Edwards would preach his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, people, not at the invitation, during the service, sinners would crawl on their hands and knees to the altar, begging God to save them. But in his message, he said that we are as a sinner, we are but held by the very spider thread above the very pit of hell. At any moment, could be plunged headlong. Can I tell you, that's where I was. But that's not where I am. Now I have His grace. Now I have His kindness. How wonderful that is. How wonderful that we have the proof of his love. By the way, that grace and kindness speaks of safety. Speaks of assurance. I've been in some dangerous places. I've been in some places that were very, very dangerous. I joke with people once in a while, some of the worst parts of Edmonton. I've been in playgrounds that were more dangerous than Edmonton. I, I've, I've been in some scary situations. I've been in some dangerous situations. But those times I've been in dangerous situations, it was because and while I was sharing the gospel. And I'll be real honest with you, there's never been a time when I've been in a dangerous place sharing the gospel when I've been fearful. Probably because I'm just a, a dummy. But I, I just knew I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> The Lord knows. If he wants me here, then I'm supposed to be here. I remember going in a building, and as I went to go in the building, the police in the police station at the bottom of the building looked at me and said, don't go in here. If you go in that elevator and you do not come back, Chicago police, they told me, we will not come look for you. 
We don't care what happens to you after you go in that door. We're not coming up there. Just so you know, you're on your own. That's not good. Why? Because I like dangerous situations? No, because I needed to share the gospel in that building. Can I tell you that God's grace and kindness are enough? Does that mean that I'm always going to be safe? No. But it means I'll always be where God wants me to be. I'll always be in his will as long as I trust him. By the way, Peter, when he was crucified upside down, he was in God's hand. So, but pastor, hold on a minute. That's pretty dangerous. That, that's not a good thing. He glorified God even in death. We get so hung up on our perceived safety and our perceived enjoyment of life that we forget that it's about God's glory, God's blessing. We see his kindness. We see his grace. The Bible says in Jude, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. By the way, let me, let me stop here just a moment. This isn't the message. But just in case there's anybody here that's struggling with this understanding of eternal security, if you think that you can lose your salvation, then you think God is not able. The Bible tells us right here he's able. Now, what does it say about God if he's able to keep you and he doesn't? Either he's a liar or he's evil. True? One of those things has to be true. So for me to believe, I'd have to throw away so many doctrines, but for me to believe that I could lose my salvation, I've got to either accept that God is evil or God is a liar. That's it. There, there, there's, you can't rectify it any other way. He's able. He's able to keep me from falling, to present me faultless before the presence of glory with exceeding joy. Jude 25, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Number four, lastly tonight, verse number 10 in our text, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto Good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Number four tonight as we see the next proof of God's love for us. He created you. Not only did he create you, but he created you for good works. Good works. For good works. I, I, I love this thought. And number one, we're his workmanship. We're his workmanship. I haven't for years, but years ago I used to build, I used to do some bowyering. How many of you know what bowyering is? Brother Darren's done some bowyering. Uh, I, I used to build longbows. And I several years ago now, probably 16, 17, 18, 19, maybe 19 years ago, I decided to build one for my dad. 
and I didn't use fiberglass. I used God's fiberglass. How many of you know what God's fiberglass is? Bamboo. And I, I did a tri-lamb bow, and I built it out of the front of the bow, the side when you pull the bow, the side people see facing away from you was raw bamboo. And then two other laminations glued together in a coal and a form. And uh, after I glued it into the shape I wanted, then I, I cut it down to shape and profiled and sanded. And I finished that bow. I created it. I crafted it. I wrote, I think, on the top bottom limb or top limb, I can't remember, facing the person holding the bow, Two letters inside of quotation marks. A P and an A. How many of you know what that stands for? Paul. That's what I call my dad most of the time. I call him Paul. One time we were out soul winning together 20 years ago in a church van in West Virginia. And I said something. I called my dad Paul. And as I got out, one of the men said, Marcus, I... Is your first name Paul? I always thought your first name was Marcus. Uh, but I wrote Paul on that bow. I, I created it. It was crafted by me. It was a gift I gave to my dad. Now, most likely that bow will never be worth millions of dollars uh, because I'm not a sought-after bowyer. I'm not a well-known crafter of bows. Because I made it has no intrinsic value to anyone else except my dad. However, there are some things in this world that are much more valuable because who made them? Many years ago, I was sent a gift from a man that I never, I've still never met. A man that I had helped with something I met online and he decided to send me a gift. He was driving through the area where I grew up, and general area, probably within 10 miles as the crow flies across the river from where my family live. And he stopped in a little country store, little everything store, gas station. Uh, as Lois knows what I'm talking about, little general store of everything. They don't exist much up here, but little place, probably half the size of this building inside. And just a little bit of everything, you go in, you can get a few things, and that's it. In the back of the building, there was a, a little wood-burning stove, a little pot-belly stove, and some chairs where you go and sit and play checkers, that kind of place down south. Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, they, there in that area near the wood-burning stove and the checkers, there was an old tub. I think it was an old uh, bin of some kind, maybe a vegetable bin, maybe an old barrel, actually, come to think of it, he told me, but there's a bunch of just old things in there, and there was an old knife, an old hunting knife, and this guy saw that old hunting knife in this little general store in this little town near where he knew that I was from that area, and he thought, I want to do something nice to pay him back. He paid a few bucks, maybe 20, 30, maybe 50 bucks, I don't remember, he bought this old knife. It was in a ratty sheath that was falling apart. The knife was pitted and old. And he sent it to me as a gift, and I, I was overwhelmed. That's really neat. That's really awesome, really cool old knife. And thanks to the wonders of the Internet and the interwebs, I began to look, and there was a name on the knife. The name was Morseth. 
I began to Google Mr. Morseth. I began to look for the knives that he created that looked like that. And I began to learn something that caused me to message that man and say, Sir, I cannot accept this gift. I, I need to mail it back to you. I realized that that knife, although it was rough and although it was a little ugly and although the sheath was falling apart, it was very valuable. Not because of its condition. It was very valuable because who made it. And I told the man, I said, sir, I'm sending this back to you. I said, I can't accept this gift. It's worth a lot of money. And he said, if you mail it back to me, I'm going to send it back up. He said, I bought it for you. I only paid whatever it was for it. He said, it's yours. And I told him, I said, sir, I'm not going to sell it. I said, I'll keep it uh, as a reminder of your love and you know, appreciation, the gift he sent me. Several years later, a friend who's a custom knife maker stole it from my house and made it look brand new again, and his wife made a custom sheath for it. That didn't add value to the knife, but the value, as far as the world's concerned for that knife, is because of the man, the famous man that made it. That's its value. Christian, can I tell you your value? You were created by him. The master. The master made you. The creator of all things. I have his love because he signed me. His signature. He made me. He made you in his image. I was made by God. I was his workmanship. I've been created in Christ Jesus. And notice the phraseology here in Ephesians 2. Unto good works. Created, by the way, means you didn't just happen. It was purposed. It was planned. I was created in Christ for a specific purpose. I need to find out what that is. Ephesians 4.11 in our text, or just a few verses away, a couple chapters away, says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God has something for you. He made you. Your worth is because of him, not because of you. These good works we have mentioned here have been preordained or foreordained by God. Titus chapter 3 and verse 8 says, this is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. I want to make a statement. If you have a pen, I encourage you to write it down. I believe a, a powerful statement about this truth. Notice in our text here, we were created, Christian, you and I were created to walk in these good works. Don't miss that. You and I were created to walk in these good works. So, listen to this statement. They await your doing. God created you to walk in those works. 
Can I tell you that they're waiting on you? They await you to do them. They await me to do them. By the way, when I do obey the Lord Jesus Christ, when I follow Him, when I honor Him in my life, I am realizing every step, every work, everything I do is a reminder, God loves me. God loves me. I've got a dear friend who got saved out of serious alcoholism and drunkenness and drugs and horrible, horrible life. Him and his wife, before they got saved, they used to get high on drugs and get angry at each other and shoot at each other with pistols in the house. And I don't mean they were pretending. I mean, they were trying to kill each other. But they would get so high on drugs that amazingly God spared them. They didn't. Several times they tried to kill each other. Somewhere tonight, Brother Hicks is standing behind the pulpit like this, preaching the word of God as an evangelist in the southern U.S. Every time he opens the Bible, lays on the pulpit it's a reminder he used to be laying down lines of cocaine he used to be laying down empty beer bottle after empty beer bottle he used to be picking up the pistol and trying to kill his dear wife but praise the Lord God created him and ordained him to walk in good works it's a reminder Christian I give that example because it's easy for you to see and, and see the difference. But I hope tonight you understand that the difference is in you as well. Amen. It's in you as well. So, Pastor, I, I was never a drunkard. I, I was never a drug addict. I never tried to kill my wife. Well, maybe I tried to kill my wife. But I, I, I didn't do those things. Remember, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He made you alive. He didn't just make you alive to make you a scarecrow to do nothing. God made you alive unto good works. And they're waiting for you to do them. Just a couple of thoughts as we close here tonight. How do we walk in good works? How do we walk in good works? Very, very quickly. By showing gratitude for redemption. By showing gratitude for redemption. Giving him praise for what he's done for us. For dying on the cross. Forgiving our sin. Placing us in the heavenlies. What if you were unsaved on your way to hell tonight? That's where you'd be without Jesus Christ. How do we walk in good works? By showing gratitude for redemption. Next, number two. By surrendering to sanctification. By surrendering to sanctification. I shared the story of my big toe breaking in half. They had to stitch it up. I didn't want them to stitch it up. I didn't want to surrender to have it stitched up. My dad and a bunch of nurses had to hold me down so they could stick needles in me, and then they could sew me up. But it needed to be done. It had to be done. You and I need to surrender to letting God set us apart and sanctify us for his purpose.
to the growth process. First Peter or Second Peter chapter one verse five. I'm not going to turn there tonight, but virtue, on knowledge, on temperance, on patience, on godliness, on brotherly kindness, on love. We need to surrender to that process. Number three, how do we walk in good works? I'm going to close with this thought tonight. By serving. By serving in all areas of good works. What is it God wants you to do? Not what is it God wants the pastor to do. Not what is it God wants your spouse to do or your your child to do or, or Brother Colton to do. What's God want you to do? Hey, teenager, what's God want you to do? Oh, I'm just a teenager. <coughs> David, a teenager, walked down in the valley of Elam and said, you will not defy my God. He affected his whole country. His whole country. Young married couple, what's God want you to do? Older couple here tonight, maybe your kids are grown. What's God want you to do? What is it God wants you to do? Has he set something aside that he said, okay, I've got some works for you to do. At least once a week, sometimes a couple times a week, Colton and I will sit in my office, our office now, And I'll say to Colton, hey, here's some things I want you to do this week. He'll pull out a notebook. Okay. I'd like to get this, 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 and this done. Here you go. Now, I may ask him, hey, did we get that done? Is that, but that's not my work. That's his work. I believe God has work for you. He has good works for us. He's got them set aside. He created you unto good works. When God calls, just like little Samuel, the day's gone by. Won't you answer? What do you want, Lord? Okay. You know why you don't want to answer? Because you don't want to do what God wants you to do. I know. You know why? Because I don't always want to do what God wants me to do. How do we walk in good works? By serving in every area. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity tonight to walk in the works that you've prepared for us. Lord, we could spend so long talking about the proofs of love that you have for us. Lord, I praise you. I thank you. I want to worship you tonight for your goodness and your love. As well, Lord, tonight, I want us to walk in those works you have for us. Lord, I believe with all my heart tonight that you have prepared some works for every one of us. And, Lord, a lot of them don't get done. Because you prepared them for us, for no one else. God, would you help us to be surrendered tonight? Help us to walk in them. Help us to surrender to sanctification. Help us to praise you for our redemption. God, may we walk in that love.
that you've proven over and over and over again in scriptures. Lord, would you be glorified tonight during this time of invitation as we set aside some time just to worship you, to praise you, to yield to your purpose. May that be the case. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Remember Colton. Let's sing together. 301. Only trust him. Number 301. you're so good to us Lord we offer our praise and our worship to you for you're worthy of it Lord may we do more than sing your praises may we do more than lift up your name in this place with our brothers and sisters in Christ but may we publish your name among the heathen may we speak of your goodness every day may we be reminded of your love as we tell others of it. And God, may we find those works that you have for us. May we pick it up on our shoulder. And may we walk in that path and that plan that you have made just for us. How wonderful that purpose, that fulfillment. Bless us now, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. And let's turn to... 1 Kings chapter 19 tonight. 1 Kings chapter 19. And we're looking at what to do after a victory. What to do after a victory. And so uh, before we get to our text for tonight, I'm going to uh, back up a bit and read uh, some of these passages here for some context. And uh, Pastor actually, he mentioned uh, this uh, account of the, in the Bible this morning in Sunday school. Uh, but I'll read, uh, beginning reading in 1 Kings 18, verse 38. Uh, this is a familiar story for many of us. Uh, the story of Elijah uh, versus the prophets of Baal uh, on Mount Carmel. 
And in verse 38, we read, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal and let not one of them escape. And they took him, uh, took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. You see, the mountaintops uh, experiences of our life are just that. Uh, they are mountaintop experiences. And we see, as we'll look at uh, Elijah's life tonight, we'll learn uh, how Elijah, he experienced this mountaintop experience. He had victory. Uh, he had this great uh, win for the Lord. Uh, but afterwards, it's uh, as, as important what we do after that victory. Uh, so we see, we'll learn about his life and his decisions he made and what uh, principles we can learn from that. Uh, we must rely, if we are to uh, go through the valley of life after that mountaintop experience, we must rely on the one who got us to the mountaintop in the first place. And so uh, what lessons do we learn from the life of Elijah on this matter? And so in our passage uh, tonight, I, I see seven truths uh, that can help us successfully continue after experiencing victory. And so let's pray uh, before we begin. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for all, all that's been said and done already, Lord, and pray that you would uh, be honored. Um, Lord, I ask, uh, as, we, as I preach tonight, Lord, I ask that you would help me, fill me with your power. I uh, pray that you uh, would work in hearts tonight, uh, Lord, that they, uh, those listening would be receptive to the truths of your word. I ask, Lord, that you help us, Lord, to know how to continue after we have experienced a victory for you, Lord, and I uh, pray uh, for these things that we learn from Elijah's life. Ask uh, for these things in Jesus' name, Amen. And so, uh, first, uh, we learn tonight in in First Kings chapter nineteen. Uh, let's read verse one through three. Uh, we learn, uh, we learn here in verse number one. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. Number one, we see uh, we must not cower in the face of opposition. Uh, we must not uh, cower in the face of opposition. We see Elijah here, he, after experiencing this great victory, uh, he goes and tells Ahab uh, all these things of what had happened with the prophets of Baal. And uh, we see Ahab tells Jezebel, his, uh, that wicked woman, uh, we see uh, and tells her all that Elijah had done, uh, what he had done with the prophets of Baal, how he had slain them. And Jezebel, she was, she was wroth. She was angry. Uh, and so we see her uh, making a vow almost. Uh, we see the way she says it. Uh, so let the gods do to me uh, and more also if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. We see her making this stern vow with herself saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to make sure that this happens, that you die. 
And so she is, she is looking for uh, his life to end. Uh, and we see Elijah, his response to this threat. It wasn't the threat that was the problem. It was his response to this threat uh, where we can learn some things tonight. We see we, Elijah allowed this threat to consume his thoughts. It, it seems that uh, he thought about this so much. Uh, we look in verse number three, and when he saw that, uh, if I was writing this down, you know, after Jezebel tells him this message, you know, you're going to die, uh, you would think it would say, and when he heard that, and when he heard that. Uh, but I believe that every word of, of the Bible is inspired by God, and I believe God had a purpose for the, the specific word here, when he saw, when he saw that. Uh, not when he, and when he heard that, but when he saw that. I believe that he didn't just hear the threats and... Uh, you know, go to God and trust God for uh, his protection, but he allowed that threat to consume him so much it was almost as if he envisioned it. He envisioned his life coming to an end by the hand of Jezebel. It seems so much so, and we see uh, that he, uh, as a result, he goes down to a place called Beersheba. Uh, Beersheba is it's a far place from where they were in, in Jezreel, uh, and we'll see uh, in, in a moment, how far that distance was. It was quite the distance for him to run to. Uh, and what we learn here, we, we have to remember that when we're doing the work of God, when we uh, are serving the Lord, we are going to face opposition. Uh, it, it's a guarantee. It's not a, a, a maybe. Uh, it's a guarantee. We will face opposition. The Bible says uh, in Second Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution and in john jesus said these things have i spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace in the world ye shall have tribulation but be of good cheer i have overcome the world and we see this uh it's a certainty that as we uh, serve the lord as we have victories for the lord we are going to face opposition we're going to face uh, persecution uh, or tribulation we're going to face those things uh, but we must remember that after a great victory for God, uh, there, there's going to be those who hate God, who desire to snuff out the work of God, desire to discourage those who are doing the work of God. And we ought to uh, remember uh, who we are serving. Uh, we see all throughout Scripture there's examples of people who are doing the work of God uh, but are have facing opposition we know nehemiah and he had sanballat and tobiah we see in in nehemiah chapter 2 and uh, verse 18 we read then i told them of the hand of my god which was good upon me as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me and they said let us rise up and build so they strengthened their hands for this good work and then verse 19 we read but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said what is this thing that ye do will you rebel against the king then answered I them and said unto them the God of heaven he will prosper us therefore we his servants will arise and build but ye have no portion nor right nor memorial in Jerusalem and so we see throughout this building process of uh, Nehemiah trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. We see Sanballat and Tobiah are, are there throughout the entire book to trying to discourage Nehemiah. Uh, why are you doing this? Why are you, you know, wh why bother? 
And so we see there's going to be those who are going to uh, you know, oppose the work of God. We must not cower in the face of opposition. And so number two, we see uh, another important principle from this life, uh, Elijah's life, is that we must continue, we must continue to trust in God. In 1 Kings 19 verse 4, we read, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it, it is enough now, O Lord. Take, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. We, we see after this, uh, the situation where he has this threat from Jezebel, he runs down to Beersheba. Uh, he has uh, lost focus uh, of, of the God he serves. He's lost focus of the purpose that God has for his life. And he has allowed fear to become his focus. Uh, when the fear of man uh, becomes our focus, the, the, the faith of in, our faith in God is forgotten. Uh, if we do not set our eyes upon God, uh, we see uh, we will find ourselves running in fear like Elijah was. And, uh, and uh, this verse, we probably heard this a few times in the last month, but uh, again, Proverbs 29, 25, we learn that the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. You know, that was a verse that encouraged me as I was uh, in New York City doing uh, gospel ministry for the Jewish people and, and trying to share the gospel with them. And it was oftentimes it could be a fearful thing, but I remembered that uh, whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. I ought to do uh, what God wants me to do. He will uh, protect me. He will guide me. The safest place to be is in the middle of God's uh, will. And so we see Elijah here, he has allowed this fear to overtake his thoughts, his mind, and he has run. Uh, he has run from what he ought to be doing. And we see he's gone all the way, we see, to Beersheba. Uh, and then a little further after that, we see he traveled over, uh, if we go to the next slide here, the, the map here, we can, we can kind of see uh, the distance. Uh, the top little section there on the map shows from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. And then the distance from Jezreel down to Beersheba, he traveled over 180 kilometers. Uh, he ran, and he just, he just I got to get out of here. He went all the way down to uh, the kingdom of Judah uh, to avoid uh, the attack of Je uh, Jezebel. And then we see he, later on, he travels in, uh, another day's journey into the wilderness. And a day's journey in that day uh, would be about 40 kilometers uh, traveling another 40 kilometers into the wilderness. This uh, prophet, he was afraid. Uh, he, was, he was fearful, and he's running for his life, and at the end of it all, he wants to die. It's, it's just mind-boggling. He, he has allowed fear to consume him so much. Uh, he has stopped trusting in uh, God, the God that he speaks for. And so 220 kilometers, he's run. When we take off, uh, our, take our eyes off God, and we focus on the problem, uh, our decisions will be guided by fear. Uh, we see uh, this similar idea of Peter uh, in the New Testament. He, uh, in, in a similar situation, he's, uh, he hears Jesus coming, uh, sees Jesus coming, walking on the water, and uh, he calls out to Jesus, Jesus, uh, can, I, can I come out uh, onto the water with you? And Jesus calls him, he starts walking out onto the water, uh, and we see it wasn't uh, 
It wasn't that he just started to sink. He, he got his eyes off of Jesus. He started looking at the waves and the wind boisterous, and uh, he was afraid, and he started to sink. And uh, we see uh, Jesus' response here, and immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand in Matthew 14 and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. We see Peter began to sink when the wind uh, was boisterous and the, the waves were great and he be became afraid. Uh, fear is the, uh, often is the absence of faith. Fear is often the absence of faith. And so we see uh, as well David, he experienced times of fear. But we see uh, in those times of fear, God used him to pen these words. And uh, let's turn to uh, Psalm 56, a uh, wonderful passage here uh, that can, you can use, uh, encourage you in times of trouble and, and difficulty. Psalm 56, verse number 1. We read David write, uh, Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine, e mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God I will praise his word. I, in God ha I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. David understood this very well. If uh, you are uh, going to be serving God, there's going to be difficulty and there's going to be times of fear. There's going to be enemies supposing uh, we ought to put our trust in God. We must put our trust in God. And then uh, we see uh, later, uh, at, we'll continue on, uh, number three, uh, you must recharge. You must recharge. Uh, we see in verse number five and eight of First Kings chapter 19, Verse 5 through 8, and as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him. And said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. I'd like a meal like that. Uh, that'd be a great meal. Uh, and to go 40 days, 40 nights, uh, the distance that he traveled, uh, if we back up one slide there, the distance that he traveled would be about 420 kilometers. Uh, so what is that, about 10 kilometers a day uh, traveling? And so he traveled on, on that meal that God had given him uh, all the way down to uh, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, is, uh, I believe it would be the same place, a uh, distance of about 420 kilometers, an incredible distance. Uh, that's uh, from here to past Cold Lake or past Calgary, some of that distance. And so uh, we see reliance upon God is essential for longevity. Uh, we must be dependent upon God. Uh, if we do not, we will run out of battery. Uh, we must be connected to the power source. We see Elijah here. He's uh, worn himself out, running in fear. 
And now he goes and he's sleeping under a juniper tree and uh, he's, uh, we see an angel comes and gives him food and water and, and tells him to rest and then he comes again and gets more food and, uh, and rests again. And we see in this uh, resting and eating, God allowed him to recharge and, and to uh, get some more energy. Uh, we see, and then after that, he went all the way down to uh, Mount, Mount Horeb. And we see here, uh, for illustration, I remember hearing about uh, this week, I heard about a company, electric car company. Uh, how many of us here have an electric car? I don't myself, but I know the Dinos have one, uh, and uh, maybe someone else. But the, an electric car requires charging. Is that right? And so you have to go to a charge station and plug it in. Uh, I heard of a car company in, in the Netherlands, of all places, uh, that's uh, working on uh, developing. They already have a great system already where they are able to swap the battery out of the car uh, so that you can, you know, kind of like a car wash, just drive in, it'll take the battery off, and then plug, it, plug a new battery in that's already fully charged, and then you're off in five minutes. Would you, would you like to be able to charge in about five minutes? That would be, be a great charge. But we see, unfortunately, we cannot just swap out the batteries of our uh, soul, body, and mind. There's, it's just not that quick. God needs us, uh, we need, has designed us to take time to rest and to uh, have balance in our life. Uh, we cannot go at 100% driving and going and going and going in our life. Uh, we ought to take times of rest. God has designed uh, times for us to rest. And if we're going to recharge, it's going to take some time. Uh, if you're going to serve God, you must take time to recharge. Uh, you cannot uh, give out uh, what you yourself do not have. Uh, and I'm talking about recharging not just in a physical sense, but as a, in a spiritual sense. Uh, we ought to uh, take time to have a relationship with God if we are encouraging others to have a relationship with God. Uh, if we're going to be sharing the gospel with others about how Jesus saved, our, uh, saved, our, saved us, uh, we ought to, one, know him and then also have a relationship with him. Uh, we ought to uh, recharge so that we can give out. Uh, if we do not have, uh, we cannot give out what we do not have. And so we ought to recharge. We, uh, we learn also Jesus taught this principle that uh, reliance upon him uh, is necessary. Uh, we must uh, rely on him. And we see in uh, John chapter 15, uh, verse number 4, uh, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. And so we see we ought to uh, take time to be uh, you know, abiding with Christ. We ought to be taking time to recharge, to uh, you know, get to know our Lord uh, before we uh, can share with him with others. Uh, we ought to recharge. And so then we see we must, uh, number four, we must go to God for rest. And similar uh, idea here. Uh, but in verse 6 through 8, we see uh, him taking rest, eating, and then taking rest again. Elijah needed to take time to rest uh, and to eat. Uh, God provided for him food and, and rest, and so much so God, uh, Elijah was able to travel all the way down to Mount Horeb. And so we must take time to rest. 
uh, and in our uh, serving for him as we uh, achieve great victories for the Lord, uh, we must uh, also rest. Uh, we cannot uh, continue uh, without taking some rest, uh, resting uh, and spending time with him. Uh, we ought to, uh, and we see that rest is a reminder to rely on God. In, in moderation, rest is not sinful uh, in, in, in appropriate amounts. We see Jesus demonstrated uh, this principle, and he offers rest to those who uh, needs rest. Uh, you can go to God for rest. In Mark 6, verse 31, And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and rest a while, for there were many coming and going. And they had no leisure so much as to eat, and they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And we see uh, Jesus after uh, the disciples after serving multitudes of people and, and being uh, being used of God. Uh, Jesus realized, you know, the disciples and they were getting uh, weary. They needed to rest. They needed to eat. They had not even time to, to take time to eat. And so uh, Jesus, in the middle of the ministry, needed to stop and uh, take time to rest and to eat. We see uh, after uh, gone, having gone out to preach and cast out devils and heal people, uh, the disciples were tired, and Jesus knew uh, this, and he told them to take time to rest in a desert place. Uh, we see Elijah doing kind of a similar thing, going out to Mount Horeb, a desert place, uh, and we see, uh, we'll, as we'll learn f further on, uh, and so when you are out of battery, God can give you rest. God gives rest to those who come to him. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then next we learn, uh, another principle is that we must remember that we are never alone when serving God. Uh, we are never alone when serving God. Uh, we see Elijah give his complaint here in verse number 10. If you look at verse number 10 with me, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy alt thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And we see Elijah, he uh, bears out his complaints to the Lord. He says, you know, I've done all these things, and uh, now I am left alone. I, only I am left, uh, and I am, I'm only here serving the Lord. And uh, we see, uh, we must remember God is always with you, one, but also there are others. I believe that there will always be others who are on your side as a Christian. Uh, you are never alone when serving God. And so God, first off, God is always with you. Uh, we see in Hebrews 13, uh, verse 5, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You know, as we're uh, serving the Lord, as we're uh, doing his work, uh, we have uh, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, uh, with us at all times, uh, to enable us to give us power. And then uh, we must also remember there's, I believe there's always another faithful Christian that you can talk to. Uh, there's always another faithful Christian uh, that you can uh, share uh, the ministry, the load of the ministry with, uh, we must never let Satan, the father of lies, tell us that we are all alone, uh, that we are all alone, that there is, there is someone else who is serving God alongside you. Uh, we see Elijah, 
if you, if you looked at verse number uh, 10, and I, if I were to read uh, verse number 14, I'll read 14, you look at verse number 10. Elijah, he uh, shares his uh, complaints again. We see, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even that I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Uh, in between verse number 10 and verse number 14, God shows him uh, and teaches him that he ought to listen to God, uh, not through a great uh, mirac miraculous thing, but through his still small voice. Uh, and so we see him uh, thinking that he is all alone, uh, and he's still not listening, I believe. Uh, he, he's, think he's repeating the same thing he said before, even I only am left. And then we see God's response. Uh, in verse uh, number uh, eight, 18, I believe, verse number 18, God says, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. And we see God is telling me, Look, there are 7,000 others that have been uh, faithful to me, that have not bowed to Baal, that have not uh, kissed him. And we see uh, God reminds him, You are not alone. When you're serving God, remember that you are not alone. And in number six, uh, we see we must listen. You must listen for God's direction. Uh, after Elijah's first uh, complaint of, uh, I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away, verse number 11, uh, we see, and he said, go forth, and God's speaking here, and go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? We see God here is, is teaching Elijah uh, that God he doesn't speak in grand orchestral sound. He, he doesn't uh, lead his uh, servants through great uh, miraculous events uh, or you know the, the hurricane or the fire, but rather through a still small voice. You know, we must, uh, I believe in that, we learn that uh, God uses the humble and obedient, those who are listening and waiting, patient, who are uh, listening for the, the smallest, stillest voice. Uh, God's speaking to them. Uh, it would be easy for Elijah, after this great victory, to get proud, uh, to get uh, to see, like, oh, look, I've done it all. I've, I've got things figured out. You know, I, I figured out how to get rid of this Baal uh, prophet problem. And uh, Elijah could have thought, oh, boy, I sure showed those Baal worshipers what's up. Uh, he could have th thought, you know, now that he's achieved that, he can, you know, he doesn't need God. He doesn't need uh, God's help. Uh, it's easy to think after having achieved something that you don't need help anymore. Uh, but if we're going to be effective servants of God, we must be humble. Uh, so God uses the humble and obedient. 
Uh, we see in James 4, and uh, verse number 6, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. And verse 10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Uh, if we ought to uh, listen for God's direction, we need to be humble. Uh, we need to be empty of self so that he can fill us with his power. Uh, we see that, that the complaint of Elijah repeated in verse 10 and 14. Uh, the first time God responds to Elijah by teaching him to listen to his still small voice. And then the second time after Elijah gives that complaint again, uh, he directs him to go back up to uh, through and past the land that he had just fled from uh, because God had some work for him to do. And so in this, we learn our last lesson today, number seven. I believe that uh, when we experience a great victory for God, uh, we have to remember that the work's not done, that uh, God still has something for you to do. God still has something for you to do. And we see here, even if like Elijah, you have uh, lived in fear uh, instead of faith, even if you've done, if you've failed, uh, God still has something for you to do. God is willing to forgive, and God is willing to uh, put you back in service, and he wants to use you. And so after victory, the, the work is not done. Your work is not done, and God still has something for you to do. We see God uh, here, he gives Elijah a second chance, and God gives him a job to do. It, it's like God is saying to Elijah, Elijah, I'm not done with you yet. You can trust me. And so Elijah, he goes up, uh, and he has uh, various things that he has to do. In verse 15, And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Melchola, shall shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that when him that escapeth the sword of Haziel uh, shall, shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. So we see uh, God still had something for Elijah to do. Uh, even though he had run in fear, even though he had stopped trusting God for a moment, uh, God still had something for him to do. When you have experienced a great victory, uh, even if uh, you do uh, stumble, you, you have uh, some struggle, you, you, fear, you face fear in the times of opposition, God still has something for you to do. Uh, even if you don't, if you have uh, won a great victory for God, God still has something more for you to do. As long as we're on this world, as long as we're on this earth, as long as we have breath, there is something for each and every one of us to do. And so uh, maybe you've let fear direct your life. Maybe uh, would I encourage you uh, to trust God instead. Uh, he has something for you to do. And so let's uh, stand and uh, take a time to pray as we have our invitation. Father, I thank you for uh, this, uh, these principles that we've learned from Elijah's life.